Welcome back to the program. If the assassination of a president took place today, we'd all know about it in a matter of seconds. Alerts, tweets, the internet, we'd all have the same facts literally in an instant. In a way that microsecond information impacts the way we process the news itself. Fifty years ago, upon the assassination of John F. Kennedy, that was not the case. The information came out slowly, even on the streets of Dallas. News traveled by word of mouth from person to person. Bit by bit, drop by drop, we lived the story over four remarkable days. The events, the images, the sounds had time to be absorbed into our pores in ways that made it part of our fabric and of the DNA of the American experience. Perhaps that's why those events 50 years ago still resonate so powerfully today. Now, New York Times best-selling author James Swanson turns a laser-like focus on the events of the final hours of the 35th President of the United States. James Swanson is the author of the previous Manhunt, the 12-day chase for Lincoln's killer, and it is my pleasure to welcome James Swanson to the program to talk about End of Days, the assassination of John F. Kennedy. James, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Great to have you here. One of the things that certainly is so powerful, and the interest in your book, the interest in this 50th anniversary is certainly part of that, is the power that this story still has, the way that it still resonates with those that remember it vividly, and even with those that don't. Yes, it does. Uh, I think it's probably because JFK was taken in his prime. He's forever young. Our youngest president ever elected to the office at 43, only 46 when he was killed. His beautiful, young, elegant wife, Jackie, was only 34 on November 22nd, the day he was shot. So we always think of him as forever young. And we also think of what the potential that was lost. What could he have done? Who would he have been? What would he have done in his administration if he'd been elected to a second term? So there's a tremendous sense of lost potential, of a lost future, of what might have been. And of course, another reason people are so fascinated is many people, too many people, believe these conspiracy theories. And so many people view it as an unsolved crime. And that certainly fuels the interest in JFK, because people always wonder, and apparently, according to recent polls, the majority of the American people still believe that there was a conspiracy. Of course, I have a lot to say about that in the book. My, my, the point of the book is not really to argue the conspiracies back and forth. What I've done is written a fast-paced true crime thriller. But... I do address the conspiracy theories at the end, and it's clear what I think about them. But these are some of the reasons why I think people cannot let go of this story. In many ways, it's been referred to as the greatest cold case of all time. And as you say, the polls indicate that fewer and fewer people really believe that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. And I think some of that, in addition to the theories about the case itself, some of it comes from the, the greater distrust we have today in institutions, and in institutional power, and the sense that even the Warren Commission was probably something not to be believed. Yes, yes. Well, you know, John Kennedy was a great optimist. He was an American patriot who believed with every fiber of his being in American greatness, in American exceptionalism. And actually, you know, he was actually quite conservative in that way. Strong missile defense, counterinsurgency warfare, special forces confronting communism. One reason the election of 1960 was so close is because Nixon and Kennedy were equally strong anti-communists. So just, just, just an interesting sidebar on, the who, on the who the real JFK was 
Talk a little bit about the story that you tell, which is really the human side of the story, the family side of the story, as it unfolded from really the night before the assassination. Yes, yes. I, I really begin before Dallas and, and uh, after Dallas, because to me, this is the great American tragedy. This could have written, been written by Shakespeare. And I tell the story in a double way, sort of a split screen between the last days and hours of Lee Harvey Oswald and his wife Marina and the last days and hours of John F. Kennedy. And I have a ticking clock, hour by hour, minute by minute, and sometimes, as in when the shots are fired in Dealey Plaza, a split-second by split-second account of what happens. Because I want my readers to feel like they're almost reading a novel, a fast-paced, incredible novel of, of... unanticipated events, of, of twists of fate. So uh, first I want to achieve that effect, to make it a thrilling, exciting, and frightening, and sad read. So that's the first way I approach the story. And I talk very much about who Oswald was, who was his wife, who were the Kennedys. And, and I begin uh, the heart of the book on the evening of November 21st, when Oswald goes to visit his wife. They're living separately during the week. And they're arguing. He begs her to come back to him and get an apartment together. She says no. He goes to bed angry. JFK and Jackie are enjoying their last dinner together that night, alone in a hotel room. And they're chatting about the day. They're talking about what a wonderful trip they're having in Texas. Jackie practices for the president a speech she's going to give. And and they have a happy night. And I just find it so interesting, these couples, uh, one in the suburbs of Dallas, one in Fort Worth, they're going to fly to, to Dallas the next day. And I, I'm so fascinated by the contrasting last nights of these two couples. So that's one example of how I try to, try to tell the story in a human way. And then, of course, as soon as the president and Jackie get to Dallas the next day, uh, the pace picks up, and that's when it really becomes the, this true crime, fast-paced thriller. And, of course, Kennedy knew very well, and, in fact, you you make reference on a couple of occasions to his premonitions about what might happen. He knew very well this seething cauldron of hatred and anger that he was going into in Dallas. Well, the strange thing is, JFK was warned, don't go to Dallas. They hate you there. It's a very conservative right-wing city. They don't want to see you. They were, they were tough on your ambassador to the U.N., Adley Stevenson, last mm-hmm. week. And... JFK's view was no American president should be ever afraid to visit an American city. And if he is afraid, he shouldn't be president of the United States. Once the Kennedys got to Dallas, they were surprised. Well, before Dallas, when they got to Texas on Thursday, November 21st, they were pleased and surprised at the great reception they were getting in San Antonio in Houston, in Fort Worth, they were enjoying the trip. JFK said it's going great. Even when they got to Dallas, there was a huge crowd waiting for them at the airport, cheering them. The president walked over to greet them. Tens of thousands of cheering people lined the motorcade route. So JFK was not greeted with hatred. Yeah, there were a few people with protest signs at the airport. A few people were waving Confederate flags. But in general... The reception that JFK got in Dallas was great, and he was enjoying it. So uh, it, it turned out not to be the city of hate that had turned against him. He got a very warm reception. 
And in fact, sh- shortly before the shots were fired, the wife of the governor of Texas, Nellie Conley, turned to the president. She was sitting in the car with her. She said, well, Mr. President, you can't say Dallas doesn't love you today. And and it was really true. He was enjoying a, a, a really good day. He did say something interesting in his hotel room in Fort Worth that morning. He talked to Jackie about their arrival in Fort Worth the previous night on, on the uh, 21st. And he said, Jackie, and I'm quoting, last night would have been a hell of a night to assassinate a president. It was dark. It was raining. We were getting jostled by the crowds. A man could have pulled a pistol out of a briefcase and shot me and vanished into the night. And then he said another thing. What would stop a man with a rifle in a tall building from shooting me? Nothing. So why worry about it? Little did he know, because he was going to leave his hotel in Fort Worth and be in Dallas within a couple hours. Little did he know, when he said that to Jackie, there was already a man in a tall building in Dallas with a rifle, waiting for him to land, waiting for him to get in the car and drive in that motorcade past the school book depository. One of the things that is so remarkable in looking back at this, really two things. One, the open car itself. It's hard to even conceive of that today. You know, when we have presidential inaugurations, the president and the first lady are allowed to, to get out of the car and walk for a few blocks, maybe. The other part of it is the fact that the motorcade route was published in the paper the day before. Yes, exactly. That's how Oswald knew what was happening. He saw in the Dallas papers... The report on the motorcade is going to be a long 45-minute motorcade throughout the downtown area. Driving past Dealey Plaza was at the very tail end of the motorcade. So in this 45-minute motorcade, uh, the car would drive past the Texas School Book Depository maybe in the 43rd or 44th minute. JFK got through the whole motorcade safely, except when he got to Dealey Plaza. Oswald even saw a map of the motorcade in the newspaper. And that is what provoked him, because he wasn't stalking JFK, he wasn't hunting him, he wasn't pursuing him. He would have done nothing if JFK didn't happen to be driving past the building where he worked. Oswald was at his wit's end. His life was in total collapse and freefall. He'd been a lifelong loser, high school dropout, minimum wage worker who couldn't hold a job, thought he was smarter than everybody else, had a chip on his shoulder, was a failure in the U.S. Marine Corps, was a failure as a political figure when he tried to defect to the Soviet Union and renounce his American citizenship. He was a failure in marriage. He was a brutal man who beat his wife. She was separating from him. He couldn't even buy shoes for his newborn infant daughter. Everything in his life, everything had gone wrong. He always wanted to do something great. He always wanted to be part of history. He always wanted to accomplish something. So he reads in the paper that the President of the United States is going to drive right past the building where he works. That was the trigger. He didn't even have his rifle with him. It was stored in the garage of the house where his wife was living. So he had to go there to retrieve the rifle and bring it to work Friday so he could kill the president. It was very much a last-minute decision by Oswald to shoot John Kennedy. One of the ironies, of course, and, and you talk about this, is that several weeks before, Oswald had made an attempt to shoot General Edwin Walker, who in Texas politics at the time was the anti-Kennedy. He represented everything that Kennedy was against. Exactly. Exactly. Walker 
was a conservative general who hated Castro, hated communism. Oswald tried to kill Walker because he thought that Walker was advocating the invasion of Cuba and the assassination of Castro. So in April 1963, Oswald decides, using the same rifle he'd later used to kill President Kennedy, Oswald decides in a nighttime sniper attack to kill Walker. So on the night of April 10th, 1963, he goes to Walker's house, he sneaks to a position, he aims at the general through a picture window and opens fire. The bullet misses Walker's head by an inch because it deflects from a window frame. Oswald then runs away into the night. That was a wonderful opportunity to save President Kennedy seven months later. If only the police in their investigation had discovered that it was Lee Harvey Oswald. If only Oswald's wife, who knew about it after he had made the murder attempt, had reported him to the police. The authorities would have arrested Oswald, they would have confiscated his rifle, and he almost certainly would have been in jail in November 1963 when President Kennedy drove in that motorcade through Dallas. If only Oswald had been captured after he tried to murder General Walker seven months before he killed Kennedy, Kennedy would have gotten out of Dallas alive on November 22nd. Why do you believe, first of all, before we go any further, why do you believe that Oswald acted alone, that there were no other parts of, of a conspiracy? Well, first, it's, it's not that I believe it. It's that dozens of pieces of evidence all point to Oswald. Uh, a few examples. Oswald ordered that rifle by mail. His handwriting is on the order form. He ordered it under a false name that he was known to use. His rifle and pistol were sent to addresses that he had been using. He said on the morning of the assassination to at least two witnesses, oh, I'm bringing some curtain rods to, to, to work. I need curtain rods at my rooming house. Well, he didn't need curtains. His room had blinds and curtains already. Also, he was the only person who ran away from the book depository after the murder. The rifle was his. It was found in the building. And by the way, in a search of the building a couple hours later, no curtain rods were ever found. He just said he was carrying curtain rods to explain why he was carrying a long object wrapped in a brown paper package. It was his rifle. And then an hour later, after he shot the president, he murdered a Dallas policeman with his pistol in cold blood. And then when the police captured him in a theater, he pulled that pistol again and tried to shoot more of them. But he, they captured him and subdued him. That's just some of the evidence. Three of Oswald's co-workers, sitting in the fifth floor window, right below the sixth floor window, heard the three shots right above their head. They even heard the three empty brass cartridge cases bouncing on the wooden floor above their heads. The evidence is overwhelming that it was Oswald. There is no hard, real, concrete evidence that shows he was part of any kind of conspiracy. Fifty years later, there is still no such evidence. The Warren Commission had many flaws. It made mistakes. It didn't have all the information it needed to have. But yet, it was right about its central conclusion. It was Oswald. Today, we have more facts. We know that more than the Warren Commission ever knew. We have better advances in science and technology. I'm convinced that 50 or 100 years from now, people will say, can you believe there was once a time when people believed all these wild conspiracy stories of grassy knolls, of second gunmen, Oswald imposters, CIA, FBI conspiracies, Russian, Cuban conspiracies? Once upon a time, everyone believed the world was flat. 
That didn't make it true. <laughs> I think a century from now, people will view the conspiracy theories the same way we view people who once believed the world was flat. One of the things again. That's not the point of my book. Right. Of course, I get into it because I realize people would want to know about this and talk about it. So and as part of my research, even though I wasn't really writing at length about the conspiracies and analyzing them back and forth, I, I did get all the books on the conspiracy. I've read them all. I'm deeply acquainted with all the competing and also often conflicting theories of conspiracy. There's simply not the real hard evidence. It's impossible to refute a conspiracy. Prove the FBI didn't do it. Prove the CIA. No. Truth is found by beginning with the known and verifiable facts. And there are dozens of known and verifiable facts that point to Lee Harvey Oswald and put him in that window firing those three shots. After the president is shot, you tell the remarkable story of Jackie staying side by side with the president even after he died. Talk a little about that. Yes, she really wouldn't leave him. Uh, of course, she was in the car with him. She was holding him in her arms when he was shot. His blood and brains were all over him. Then she goes into the emergency room. A nurse tries to block her way. Jackie says, I have to be with him when he dies. The nurse pushes her. Jackie pushes her back. Then a Navy admiral orders that nurse, step aside. She's coming in. Then Jackie rides with him in the hearse to Air Force One. She sits beside the coffin during the trip. Then, when he's taken from Andrews Air Force Base to Bethesda Naval Hospital, she stays there from 7 o'clock at night to 4 o'clock in the morning during the autopsy and the embalming. Then she gets in the hearse and escorts him back to the White House and supervises as the coffin is laid in repose in the East Room of the White House. Then, of course, she has to sleep for a couple hours. She's been up almost a day. Then, when his body is taken by carriage to the U.S. Capitol to be laid in state, she goes with him. When he's to be taken from the Capitol back to the White House, she goes with him. When he's to be taken from the White House to the funeral at St. Matthew's Cathedral, she leads the procession on foot to the church. And when it comes time to take him to Arlington Cemetery, she rides with him and escorts him to the grave. Only when he's buried at Arlington, and she can't be with him any longer, does she not accompany him to his, his final destination, which, which is the grave. She just didn't want to leave his side. She felt she owed it to him to honor him, and also to preserve and, and, and make legendary his legacy. We talked at the beginning about the images from that day that are certainly seared into the consciousness of the country. Talk a little bit about the scene you describe when she goes into the when Jackie goes into the bathroom of Air Force One before the swearing-in of Lyndon Johnson. Yes, yes. She's agreed to pose for that famous swearing-in photograph of Lyndon Johnson. She'll stand by his side. But before she goes out, and she says, I, I should do it because it's for history, she looks at herself in the bathroom mirror of her private chamber on Air Force One. And she says later, I looked at myself. His blood, his brains were on my face. They were in my hair. And I took a tissue and wiped my face clean. 
And as soon as I did that, I said, you shouldn't have done that. You should have left it on. Of course, she wouldn't change out of that bloody suit. She said, I want the people to see what they have done. What she meant was, I want the American people to see what my husband has sacrificed for them on their behalf. She even wore that suit when Air Force One landed five hours later at Andrews Air Force Base. The American people were going to get their first look ever at Jackie. Since the assassination, the door opens and America lets out a collective gasp. She's covered with blood. It's on her legs. It's on her stockings. It's on her suit. The American people were stunned. They'd never seen something like this on television. That made that suit iconic. That bright pink suit was seared into the collective memory of the American people by what Jackie did. There's also the sense of it being, and you talk about this, this first common shared experience. You know, we talk a lot about the impact of television in getting Kennedy elected, and of course the, the Kennedy-Nixon debates. Television was still in its infancy, and this was really the first nationally televised, non-stop event that everyone shared at the same moment. Yes, it's true. It brought the nation together, because we didn't have cell phones then iPhones, personal computers. Uh, we didn't have a thousand cable channels. We had three television networks that spanned the nation. We had the major magazines, the picture magazines, Life, Look, the Saturday Evening Post. We had the major city newspapers, and that was it. That's how people got their news. Everyone was watching the same network news. Everyone was watching the same handful of, of news network anchors like Cronkite and Brinkley and others. So we experienced the tragedy together. It was the first time in American history that the electronic news media united the country in a common tragedy. It was a historic moment. That carried right on through to, to the assassination of Oswald himself by Jack Ruby. Yes, even more so. Because Oswald was assassinated on live television. It was the first live murder broadcast on American television. So that became an intense experience. Because, of course, no one saw the assassination of the president live. That famous Zabruder film of the assassination was, in fact, not broadcast on American TV until 1975. But the, the shooting of Oswald was broadcast live. And it, that became an iconic moment for millions of people. People couldn't believe what had happened. There were 70 policemen in that basement. Why couldn't they protect Oswald? Why were they so incompetent? Well, they wanted to curry favor with the news media. They didn't want the, the national media to blame Dallas for the assassination of John Kennedy. So they wanted to be nice to the reporters, give them access to Oswald, keep that basement garage open so people could come in there. They should have transferred Oswald in the middle of the night when no one was around. But in their zeal, to protect the image of the city of Dallas, they did far more damage. It wasn't the fault of Dallas that the president was assassinated. It was the fault of Lee Harvey Oswald, his murderer. But it was completely the fault of the Dallas authorities that Oswald was murdered in their hands. Do you believe, though, that the atmosphere in Dallas, the, the hostility that existed towards the president, towards the administration, this kind of hothouse atmosphere that was really pretty unique and indigenous to Dallas, in some way contributed, perhaps, to Oswald's attitude, Oswald's feelings, even if you believe that Oswald acted alone? No, I don't think so, because as, as far as we can tell, Oswald didn't even hate John Kennedy. Uh, he was, seemed to be neutral, according to Oswald's wife. He wasn't seething about John Kennedy. So 
any hatred in Dallas was not feeding into Oswald's hatred or resentments. Oswald did this for fame, for excitement, for a thrill, to be part of history. I think if Richard Nixon was president and Nixon was driving in a motorcade through Dallas, Oswald might have as much wanted to shoot him. He once told his wife he was going to go see Nixon speak, and his wife said, no, you're not. You tried to kill that general, and now you're going to try to kill Nixon? And and so Kennedy was the vehicle for Oswald to express his frustrations, his 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 disappointments. So I don't think it was the climate in Dallas that drove Oswald forward. Uh, I really don't. You talk in detail about the 12 hours that the Dallas police and that the other authorities interrogated Oswald. Talk a little about that. Yes. Oswald kept uh, saying, I want a lawyer, I want a lawyer. But when the police didn't bring him one, uh, Oswald was happy to talk anyway. He loved chatting with them for 12 hours. He, he was this game of cat and mouse. He enjoyed himself. He taunted them. He teased them. He lied. Uh, he, he told conflicting stories. Uh, he said when the assassination happened, he was on the first floor, and he was going up to the second floor. And then another time, he said when the assassination happened, he was on an upper floor, and he was coming down to the first floor. He denied that he ever owned a rifle, that he ever owned a pistol, that he ever ordered one. Uh, it was a whole tissue of lies. But it, it, it's fascinating to see how he tried to deceive the police and deal with them. They could sense right away that he loved chatting with them, and it was a game to him. And then when his wife came to visit him in the jail, she knew it was him. She said he was always a man who complained about his rights, who, who was always uh, at the slightest provocation, whining and complaining. He was quiet. He was subdued. She said she knew. When his brother came to visit him, he looked into Lee's eyes and tried to get a sense of what happened. And Oswald looked at his brother and said, Brother, you won't find anything in there. That's some of the fascinating things that happened while Oswald was in police custody. One of the fascinating things that happened during the Kennedy autopsy, and you talk about this, and it's certainly one of the more controversial issues, is what happened to Kennedy's brain after the autopsy. Yes, uh, the brain was not buried with the president. Uh I discovered that's certainly true. This is not my supposition or my conclusion or possibility. With absolute certainty, I can say, President Kennedy was buried without his brain. It was then sealed in a stainless steel container with a screw-top lid. That container was then stored in a Secret Service file cabinet in the executive office of the president. Then it was transferred to a special room at the National Archives where Evelyn Lincoln President Kennedy's former secretary was organizing his personal effects. There, the brain was placed in a footlocker that also contained dozens of medical slides made at the autopsy, tissue samples, blood samples, even bone fragments. Then, on all days, Halloween 1966, it was discovered that the footlocker and the brain and all the other autopsy materials had simply vanished. And to this day, no one knows what happened to them. I do have a theory based on what I think is the best evidence of what happened to the material, but there's no doubt it's all gone. What is your theory about it, James? The president's brother, Robert Kennedy, took it all. 
not to conceal evidence of a conspiracy, not to conceal evidence that the, that the president was also shot from the front. I think Robert Kennedy took these materials to preserve his brother's privacy and secrets because John Kennedy had been a very ill man throughout his life. And the American people never knew this during his lifetime. And I think Robert wanted to preserve that illusion of this vigorous, fit young man in the White House and didn't want the American people to know how truly sick JFK had been, how many medications he was on, how he spent a lifetime in pain. And I think he wanted to preserve the legacy or the myth of his brother's public image and to prevent us from finding out about these things. That's why I think he took all the autopsy materials and the brain. Of course, the conspiracy theorists, on the other hand, believe that, that he did take the brain and that it had to do with not wanting people to know what the trajectory of the bullet really was. Yes, of course. You know, and, and I, I've, I've found out that there's really nothing you can say to the true believers in the conspiracy theories. They don't care that 500 witnesses in Dealey Plaza didn't see a man at the grassy knoll. They don't care that a man standing on the railroad underpass, overpass above the grassy knoll didn't see anyone down there. They don't care when the, these stories are told of puffs of smoke from the grassy knoll that modern military weapons don't emit puffs of smoke. They're not muzzle-loading weapons from the Civil War that create <laughs> clouds of smoke. Modern weapons don't do that. Most of the witnesses in Dealey Plaza heard three shots. We know the three shots were fired from the book depository. So many of the theorists don't want to accept the facts. And once someone's not willing to accept verifiable facts, how can you argue with them? James Swanson, the book is End of Days, The Assassination of John F. Kennedy. James, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 